Now, I'm pleased to introduce our speaker. Ben Railton is a professor of English studies and coordinator of American studies at Fitchburg State University, or University here in Massachusetts. He has written five books on US history, literature, and culture. And he is also a prolific blogger, columnist, and public scholar on platforms including the Saturday Evening Post and HuffPost. Our speaker's newest book addresses two competing yet interconnected visions of American identity, exclusionary and inclusionary. The United States Constitution begins with three simple words, we the people. But how do we define that we? Ben Railton is here to share his insights with examples from our history, from the earliest moments of contact between indigenous peoples and European colonists, through centuries of conflicts and debate, up to the issues and arguments that define our contemporary moment. The battle over who is American um, has shaped our society and culture time and again. So please join me in welcoming Ben Railton. Thank you so much. Thank you, uh, Danny, for that great introduction. And uh, thanks to everybody at the Athenaeum. First of all, I'm Elsa Vernon from Events, who's out there, uh, with Kate from the Harvard Bookstore as well. Thanks to them, uh, to Brian for the great AV help. Um, and, and just to everybody who made uh, this possible, this is an amazing space to be able to give this talk. Um, but thanks especially, of course, to you all for, for coming out on a cold uh, Thursday afternoon, or just afternoon, to, to be part of this conversation. And that's the last thing I'll say before I get started. I do think of every talk as a piece of an ongoing conversation. Um, there'll obviously be time at the end to keep that conversation going with questions and thoughts of yours, and then if you're able to stay um, at the signing table um, as well. But beyond that, my last slide is my contact info in various ways, and I would really love to keep the conversation going beyond today. So if you have follow-up thoughts, questions, things to talk more about, to share with me, uh, please make sure to do that if you would, and, and keep the conversation going beyond uh, this great session too. Thanks. So. As, as Danny mentioned, the focus of, the focus of this talk, uh, like the focus of the project that it's based on, is an American argument, an American debate. And it might seem in late 2019 like America is all argument all the time. And I think there's some unfortunate truth to that. And a lot of those arguments can feel at best like digressions or distractions from what we should be doing or want to be doing, or at worst, much worse than that, divisive, even destructive parts of our society. But some arguments are different. Some arguments are necessary, even essential ones, for us to try to have and engage and really acknowledge and, and, and carry forward are even defining arguments. And that's what the focus of this project is, a literally defining argument, an argument about how we define not just this place, not just the idea or the, the space or the community of America, but even more exactly, who is part of that? Who is American, as my subtitle highlights. And as Danny mentioned, Part of the reason for that focus, for me, starts with those first words of the Constitution. I think it's a striking choice to begin with that first person plural pronoun, to begin with that idea of a we, of a community, we the people. But in every way and at every moment, as I argue in, in, in some moments in the course of this book and a few that I'll highlight today, that we has been contested, that we has seen different definitions, competing definitions advanced. And my argument here is, in particular, two ends of a spectrum of definition, as, as Danny highlighted. On the one hand, exclusionary definitions of America, by which I mean, as it notes up there, and I'll, I'll try not to read the whole of slides, but point to just details of them, definitions of that we that depend also on creating thems, 
thems that are not part of that we, cultures and communities that are identified as outside of that we, excluded from that we. And I don't just mean, for example, other nations. Of course, other nations are not part of, of, of one nation's we in the same way. I mean cultures and communities that are here, that are present in this place, but in these exclusionary definitions are not seen as, as central, at least, to that we, to what is American, perhaps not, not, not part of that American at all. And at the other end of that spectrum, then, is the idea of a more inclusive uh, definition or set of definitions. Definitions that start with the premise that, no, everybody who's here, every culture, every community, is essentially part, is included in that way. Now, there's a lot of follow-up questions from that idea. Uh, what then do those different groups share? What links them? How might we define a community through them? But the starting point of an inclusive definition is that idea that everyone here is included, is centrally part. And so, in the book, across eight chapters, I trace this through uh, different histories, different case studies, different communities and moments. I'll highlight just a few of them briefly today. But before I do that, I do want to say a little bit more about um, what I mean by these concepts, illustrate a little bit more by connecting them to another Central American concept. And I think you can really see this battle between exclusion and inclusion play out in a lot of our, our national narratives and concepts, whether it's the American dream, for example, or in this case, the idea of America as a melting pot. So prominent, long-standing, and even ongoing, if, if certainly now challenged in various ways, way to think about America, think about who we are. But I would argue that, again, like a lot of our national narratives, we can see more exclusionary and more inclusive visions of what that concept of a melting pot might look like. So an exclusionary vision of a melting pot idea or of the process of melting as a part of becoming American would focus, for example, on American as a very particular cultural identity and everyone else melting toward that very particular identity. And often, as the concept has been used, that endpoint of the melting process has been defined in one way or another as things like Anglo, European, white, English-speaking, Christian, and thus every other culture or community in, this, in that version of the melting pot idea would be gradually attempting to move toward that particular endpoint, that particular identity. And a cultural critic who uh, made that same argument about the melting pot, not in support of it, he was uh, critiquing it, is Horace Callan in his two-part uh, essay for The Nation magazine in 1915 entitled Democracy Versus the Melting Pot. And this is a key quote where he identifies that kind of exclusionary version of the melting pot, noting that this general notion of Americanization, as it had often been used, appears to denote the adoption of all these particular things, and then most relevantly, it connotes a transmutation by the miracle of assimilation of all these other communities, and I would argue those are just representatives of many others too, into beings similar in background, tradition, outlook, and spirit to the descendants of the British colonists, the Anglo-Saxon stock. So what Callan's identifying there again is an exclusionary version of the melting pot where Anglo-Saxon stock is equated with American and everybody else in this melting process is expected to or trying to seen as moving toward that particular definition, that particular vision. Now that's not an entirely exclusionary one, that version of the melting pot, because it does at least allow for the possibility that other cultures and communities could move in that direction. But of course it would always be partial at best for members of any other culture to become Anglo-Saxon. And I would argue that in practice, what that version of the melting pot, that exclusionary one, 
has produced is much more overt and full versions of exclusion. And we can see that just a decade or so after Callan's essay with the arguments in support of the 1920s immigration laws, the Quota Acts of 1921 and 1924, which are the first truly comprehensive national immigration laws of any kind, which are based entirely on creating exclusionary uh, categories uh, based on nationality and ethnicity to attempt to exclude or very fully exclude certain cultures and communities, and which are supported with a version of the exclusionary definition that we can see building on that exclusionary melting pot, I would argue, and that we see, for example, in this uh, bit of a speech on the Senate floor from South Carolina Senator Ellison Durant-Smith, who was one of the sponsors of the 1924 quota after the... Uh, Taft-Hartley Act, as it's also known. So he argues in that speech, it seems to me the point as to this measure is that the time has arrived when we should shut the door. Thank God we have in America perhaps the largest percentage of pure, unadulterated Anglo-Saxon stock. And it is for the preservation of that splendid stock that has characterized us that I would advance this bill, that I would make this argument. And besides that repetition of Anglo-Saxon stock, which is a key kind of reminder of that part of the melting pot narrative, the exclusionary version, I would highlight the following phrase, that splendid stock, that has characterized us. This is a definition of America that equates American with that Anglo-Saxon identity, that Anglo-Saxon stock, and uses that to advance this very fully exclusionary argument about immigration and culture and other things. So that's an exclusionary version of this big national narrative, the melting pot. But as usual, I certainly argue, we have also an alternative, a much more inclusive version. And in this case, that inclusive version is really the first one that was advanced, um, that advanced the idea of melting as a kind of core American process at all, at least as historians have traced it. And that's the version advanced by this really interesting guy and book, Hector St. John de Crevecourt's Letters from an American Farmer. Uh, Krefcore himself is an amazing story that I won't get into at length here. I'll say that a lot in the course of this brief time. I, I engage him a little more in the intro of the book. He's an immigrant from France, first to Canada. Um, he fights in the French and Indian War on the Canadian side, the French side, and then comes to the U.S. Um, after the war, immigrates to New York, becomes a surveyor and map maker in New York City, marries a, a New York woman, and they move upstate in New York to run a farm, to attempt to, to run a farm. They do uh, for some time successfully. But while he's doing all that, he's also someone who's thinking a lot about these questions of identity, who he is, what America might mean at this revolutionary moment in particular, and he eventually collects that into this book, Letters from an American Farmer, uh, the first edition of which is published in, in uh, I think in London in 1782, and then there are American editions, multiple editions over the years, and he engages a lot of different ideas in that, but letter three in particular, which comes to be known as what is an American, he asks that question overtly in letter three, is a particular place to see this more inclusive version of the melting pot idea, and this is the quote that really highlights that, where he argues, he is an American who leaves behind uh, the old, receives new identity from all these new aspects of life, and then most relevantly, here individuals of all nations are melted into a new race of men whose labors and posterity will one day cause great changes in the world. So we have that melting idea, that idea that the process of Americanization is a melting, but note how inclusive it is, how shared it is by everyone, individuals of all nations. Everyone goes through that melting process towards something different, something new, a new race of men. Like a lot of inclusive arguments, uh, Krefcourt's is a little less developed in terms of what that new thing exactly is, what links all those individuals, but part of it is just that they're all here and going through that same process, right? Individuals of all nations are melting together towards something else. It's an inclusive vision of, of what it means to be in this place and to be part of America. And in a limited 1780s way, Krefcourt even tries to think about that for uh, Native Americans in some of the chapters of his book, for enslaved African Americans. He's trying at least to genuinely think about this as an inclusive shared 
process. So that's on a broad level, a bit more about what I mean by exclusion and inclusion, a couple different ways to think about America and how they can show up in even some of our biggest national narratives. Uh, this is just a quick a note of the different, of the eight total chapters that I moved through. I'll try in the course of, of the ones I highlight briefly today, which are the italicized ones, to also highlight some different types of histories and, and communities. Because I think part of what I want to stress always in, in talking about this project is it might seem like it relates most fully to immigrant communities or new arrivals, and that certainly is, is one important type of history throughout American history, of course. But it's not limited to that. This, these definitions, this battle, this argument affects all American communities, all of us, and I'll try to move through a couple different types, a couple different examples to help uh, make that case. And then again, all of these are things about which there'd be a lot more to say, either today in the follow-up or in, in, in conversations beyond today, or if you're interested in, in checking out the, the book as well. So I want to start with the most overt moment of exclusion that I'm aware of, although this is unfortunately a competitive field, but it's at least one of the most overt moments of exclusion in American history, which is the Japanese internment uh, policy uh, during World War II. Um, but a moment, as I'll argue in a second, and as I do in, in, in each of these cases, where we also have in the same histories, in the same moment, even in the same places and figures, inclusive alternatives, very different ways of thinking about that Japanese-American community. So this is an example of a community that was relatively recent, or at least recently developed at the time of this exclusionary history. Over about the 50 years prior to World War II is the real explosion of Japanese-American population in the US. As you see, there is about 2,300 documented Japanese-Americans on the 1890 census. Um, and that number explodes over the next decades, 25,000 in 1900, 68,000 in 1910, until by the start of World War II or so, 1940, there are over 120,000. Japanese Americans in the mainland US on that 1940 census. And if we include Hawaii in the mix, which we should, it was not yet a state, but of course it was a US territory for most of this time and an important one, uh, that number basically doubles. Japanese Americans were a huge part of the Hawaiian uh, population from even before the US had a presence there. And as you see, by 1920, 110,000 Japanese Americans in Hawaii. And by 1930, more than 140,000, including, and the reason I highlight that number of 41,000 school children, is to note that even though this was, of course, a relatively new community and overall US terms. It was multi-generational for sure by 1940, including many tens of thousands of Japanese Americans born in the US and thus US citizens as guaranteed in the 1890s by the Supreme Court case Wong Kim Ark versus the US that birthright citizenship extended to Asian Americans born in the US even though immigrant Asian Americans could not gain citizenship during this era. So it's a relatively new community, but it's a hugely developed one over these decades, very sizable, multi-generational as of 1940, as of the start of World War II. And at that moment, or rather after the bombing of Pearl Harbor by the, the empire of Japan, the nation of Japan, the US government was faced, I would argue, with a very clear choice about how to view this community, this Japanese American community, whether to view and treat them in a more exclusionary or a more inclusive way. Unfortunately, the federal government opted very fully for exclusion. Um, and I'll highlight just a few uh, levels to thinking about uh, the internment policy through that lens. There's obviously a lot of sides to internment and histories and details focusing here on the idea of exclusion as a key part of it. And that's true even in the legal uh, language of it. So for example, in the executive order uh, 9066, through which the Franklin Roosevelt administration first created uh, the move toward the policy just a couple months after the Pearl Harbor bombing. Uh, the language is really very much about exclusion and the rationale for it. So you see, for example, the policy doesn't yet create the internment camps. The executive order doesn't. Instead, what it identifies are areas from which any and all persons may be excluded. And those areas happen to be virtually the entire US, other than what will be the spaces for the camp. So thinking about it through that idea of exclusion, of keeping out, keeping people out. And the reason for that is the follow-up 
quote there, that the goal was to prescribe regulations for the conduct and control of alien enemies. And both of those last words are really telling, enemies because it associates so fully this American community with a foreign nation with whom the U.S. was at war. But even more telling to me is alien, which is a kind of legal word in the history of immigration and immigration law that identifies all these Japanese Americans, and it is very literally all, as I'll talk about more in a second, um, as, as foreign, as alien, whatever, again, their status in the United States, their citizenship, their relationship to the U.S., their histories, etc., alien enemies. And unfortunately, when the Supreme Court upholds that policy, um, in response to the incredible uh, activism and actions of a man named Fred Korematsu, who I talk about at length in the chapter, along with another woman who's just begun to be better remembered, named uh, Mitsuye Endo, who has another case that comes before the court at the same time, um, they push back on internment. Uh, they're both born in the U.S., uh, U.S. citizens. But the court sides with internment, and it does so again through some of those same ideas, um, arguing in the, in the decision that Korematsu was excluded because we are at war with the Japanese Empire and because the government decided that the military urgency demanded that all citizens of Japanese ancestry be segregated. And again, just the threading of that needle, acknowledging that Korematsu is a citizen born in the U.S., and yet that of Japanese ancestry, identifying him as something separate from, distinct from, American identity. And those arguments we can see even more clearly in the support for internment over the a few months when it's really being developed. And these are just a couple quotes. I know it's small, although not as small on this big screen. Um, and from those who are implementing the policy and then an example of a media narrative in support. So Colonel Carl Bendison, he's the administrator of the WCA, uh, CCA that really establishes the camps argues in, a, in testimony before the Supreme Court that he's determined, uh, before the Senate, sorry, that he's determined that if they have one drop of Japanese blood in them, they must go to camp. And that policy has upheld people with as little as one-sixteenth Japanese-American heritage are interned among uh, the many hundreds of thousands who are. Um, and then the commander of the military in the West, General John DeWitt, goes much further in advancing this exclusionary argument. A Jap's a Jap. Makes no difference whether the Jap is a citizen or not. Um, and the Los Angeles Times, in an editorial in support of internment, really makes the logic of that exclusionary definition of America particularly clear. So a Japanese-American born of Japanese parents, nurtured upon Japanese traditions, living in a transplanted Japanese atmosphere, notwithstanding his nominal brand of accidental citizenship, almost inevitably and with the rarest exceptions, grows up to be a Japanese and not an American. Again, defining these as two fundamentally separate communities, an exclusionary vision where it seems there's not really much possibility for there to be that middle ground, but for example, Japanese-American as a phrase. Here it is one thing or another, and it is the one thing. It is the exclusionary definition. So those are a few examples of how exclusion, the policy, uh, internment, the policy is built, I would argue, on exclusionary visions of that community and of the nation through it. But again, as often and as always in the cases I trace, in the same moment, even in the same figures and histories and places, we see inclusive alternatives. And the one I want to talk briefly about here is the alternative presented by Japanese Americans who serve in the U.S. military during World War II. And that's a process that really begins with this very particular group. Uh, who come to be known as the Varsity Victory Volunteers. Really amazing group and story. Uh, these are college students in Hawaii, Japanese-American college students, mainly at the University of Hawaii, who are right after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, uh, join up with a new group that is called the Hawaiian Territorial Guard, the HTG, which is a, a kind of national guard for the territory of Hawaii, but who are soon after that expelled from the HTG because of their Japanese ancestry, their Japanese-American identity, and who pushed back on that expulsion, writing this letter to the territorial governor, Emmons, with the help of a local uh, Chinese-American community leader, who's pictured on the next slide, to argue for why they should be able to serve. Uh, we joined the Guard voluntarily with the hope that this was one way to serve our country in our time of need. Hawaii is our home, the United States, our country. 
We know but one loyalty, and that is to the Stars and Stripes. Um, their petition is accepted by Governor Emmons, and they come to call themselves the Varsity Victory Volunteers, are serving in a variety of capacities in the U.S. Armed Forces, on bases, and in the Armed Forces throughout 1942 in Hawaii. Um, this is a picture of, of a few of them at work in Hawaii during that year, and of that, that Chinese-American leader, Hung Wai-Ching, who became a key advocate and ally and representative of the incredible uh, multicultural identity of Hawaii itself in this era. Uh, they have a significant impact, first of all, in Hawaii itself, uh, as traced by this historian of Hawaii during World War II, Gwenfred Allen, who writes about how much the VVV influenced uh, narratives of Hawaiian and American identity, a turning point in the treatment of the people of Japanese ancestry in this territory. Um, what followed was uh, this group, initially small, demonstrating to a suspicious and skeptical community that the Americans of Japanese ancestry, that same phrase that the LA Times had used to try to separate this community, were every bit as American and every bit as loyal to this country and her ideals as any other group. But their impact goes way beyond just, just Hawaii and just that moment as well, and really uh, leads to a significant change, or at least contributes to a significant change in the US war effort and military overall. Throughout 1942, Japanese Americans were not allowed to serve in the U.S. military in any capacity for the same reasons and logic of internment. Um, but in late 1942, December, an assistant secretary of war named McCoy uh, visits Hawaii and tours the, the, uh, the installations and military facilities there. He's guided on a lot of that tour by Hung Wai-Ching, that man I had just mentioned and pictured. And Hung makes sure that he sees the VVV in a number of capacities and interviews members of them. And less than a month later, about three weeks later, I would argue inspired at least in part by that visit for sure, and also by necessity in the war. Um, the federal government's policy, the military policy, is changed. And a new January 1943 policy allows Japanese Americans to enlist and serve in the armed forces. And, and that policy change is immediate and striking. On the day of the change, the day the new policy goes into effect, 10,000 Japanese Americans volunteer in Hawaii for the armed forces. Over the next few months, more than 2,000 volunteer from the internment camps. Again, as literal a kind of encapsulation of exclusion and inclusion in the same spaces, the same places as I can imagine. Um, over the next couple of years, that number blossoms. By the war's end, more than 33,000 serve in two particular regiments, the 442nd and 100th Infantries. The 100th comes to be known as the Purple Heart Battalion because of how much uh, action and, and, and casualties that, that, that a battalion uh, sees and, and, and takes throughout North Africa and Europe. Uh, they're the first group, uh, for example, to liberate uh, the Dachau concentration camp, among many other striking uh, moments. Uh, General George Marshall, in charge of the European theater, says of the 100th that everybody wanted them, every military commander wanted them, and the numbers bear that out, particularly the acclaim that that regiment receives. They're a fourth down. It becomes the most awarded military regiment in U.S. history, receiving uh, thousands of different awards and citations, including three presidential citations, at the last of which, in July 1946, President Truman says to the, the surviving members, you fought the enemy abroad and prejudice at home, and you won. But it's not as, as simple as that, as one side or the other in this debate winning. For example, throughout World War II, throughout the service of these tens of thousands of men, their families remained interned. The families of all these servicemen were interned throughout the war still. Um, one of them goes on to become a really interesting activist named Yuri Kochiyama, who becomes associated with the civil rights movement and a number of other activisms, eventually also with the reparations for Japanese internment. Her brother is a serviceman, and yet she and her family remain interned throughout the war, as virtually all the families and other Japanese Americans do. So it's not about winning exactly, but it's about these two visions, these two alternative visions of that community and of America more broadly in this World War II moment. So that's one example. Uh, my latter couple are a little briefer, but I want to highlight again different visions and different histories that highlight 
uh, different examples of American communities, um, not at all just new immigrant ones. And so the second is an example of one of the longest standing, indeed, uh, one of the oldest American communities, post-contact American communities, and how they too can be defined or seen in these very different ways and, and can respond in very different ways. And that's enslaved African Americans during the revolutionary era, at the time of the revolution. And in that era, at the outset of the revolution in particular, we have a very clear vision advanced in multiple um, areas, including in a draft of the Declaration, of that community enslaved African Americans as fundamentally outside of the colonies, fundamentally not part of the revolutionary project that the colonies are undertaking. And in this draft paragraph of the Declaration, uh, it ends up being not included in the final revised version after the Continental Congress debates it for complicated reasons. But in his draft of June 1776, Thomas Jefferson advances that vision, that exclusionary way of thinking about enslaved African Americans. And he does it first by making slavery itself one of the complaints that the colonists are lodging against King George in England, arguing that slavery has been imposed entirely on the colonies by England, that it is King George's will, his decision, a product of his power. I, he calls in that paragraph the enslaved African Americans both a foreign people and a distant people, defining them as essentially something outside of the colonial project and certainly the revolutionary one that he's, a, that he's inaugurating here. And then at the end of that paragraph, he takes that even a step further in these sentences, arguing that the king is now exciting those very people to rise in arms among us and to purchase that liberty of which he had deprived them by murdering the people upon whom he also obtruded them thus paying off former crimes committed against the liberties of one people with crimes which he urges them to commit against the lives of another. Now, as usual, there's complicated historical context for this. The royal governor of Virginia, Dinwiddie, had issued a proclamation in, I think, late 1775, arguing that if enslaved African Americans ran away from slavery, they might be able to join the British military. But Jefferson, in this draft paragraph, elevates that, uh, that particular moment, which had no particular legal standing in historians' debate whether it happened in any significant way or not. In any case, he elevates it to one of the complaints against the king, turning slavery itself into this foreign um, entity forced upon the colonies, and more exactly, the enslaved African Americans, into that foreign people forced upon. We see it in the use of a word like obtruded, forced by violence. These, this people, this foreign people, have been forced by violence upon the colonies. Not, in all, not at all part of the colonial identity of Virginia or the new United States, certainly not part of the revolutionary project. And indeed, in that last clause, or the last clauses, he, he, he pits them against each other, right? The desire for liberty of the enslaved African Americans is hostile to against uh, the desire for liberty of the colonial revolutionaries that Jefferson is writing for here. One people and another. These are separate people, and they're even opposed to each other. Enemies of the revolution is, is more or less how this paragraph and, and, and this idea depicts those enslaved African Americans. And so that's one piece, one example of an exclusionary vision of that uh, community of Americans at the time of the, of the, uh, the outset of the revolution. There are a, a variety of ways to push back. What I try to do throughout the chapter in the book is highlight how an inclusive vision of that community instead makes clear how, how much the revolution and, and the cause of liberty particularly affected enslaved African Americans was particularly meaningful to that community. So uh, one example not pictured here that I'll just briefly allude to is Crispus Attucks, the so-called first casualty of the revolution, killed uh, down the street on King Street at the Boston Massacre in March 1770. Um, I think it's somewhat well known that Attucks was an American of color. He was mixed race. His father was an enslaved African American and his mother a, a Natick Wampanoag Native American. 
But what I think less well known is that he was also a fugitive slave. Um, he was born into slavery in Framingham, Massachusetts, to a master named William Brown. He runs away in 1750 in his mid-20s. We know that because Brown advertises for his capture and return to slavery consistently for many years after that. Attucks remains free, uh, becomes a merchant sailor in, in Boston, and ends up there on King Street in 1770. And I would argue that his status, not just as someone born into slavery, but as a fugitive slave, certainly would have informed his commitment to the cause and the protest that was unfolding there on King Street, or at least is, is a part of his identity worth thinking about as connected to an incipient revolution against tyranny. But the people I want to talk about for a little bit longer are these two, Elizabeth Freeman and Quack Walker, two enslaved African-Americans in Massachusetts as well, who used the language and ideals and legal starting points of the revolution to argue successfully for their own freedom and even to help with the abolition of slavery in Massachusetts as a result. It's a children's book about uh, Freeman, who is often known by her nickname, Mumbet. And so these are two of the 5,000 or so enslaved African Americans in uh, Massachusetts as of, as of about 1780. Um, all the colonies turned new states during the revolution, uh, practiced legal slavery still, including Massachusetts, and, and they were two of many. But in 1780 as well, Massachusetts passes the state constitution, the first constitution passed by any of the new states during the revolution. And in that Massachusetts constitution, the starting point is based very fully on the Declaration of Independence and the language of it. Uh, the entire first section is called a, a Declaration of the Rights and Freedoms of the Inhabitants of the Commonwealth. And Article 1 of that opens, all men are born free and equal and have certain natural, essential, and unalienable rights. So echoing the language of the opening of the Declaration, but here putting it in legal terms. The Constitution is a statement of law, the laws by which the Commonwealth will operate. So making that promise of, of shared freedom and equality a legal starting point. And it's in response to that that both Freeman and Walker, in their initially separate cases, argue for their own freedom. And Freeman does it most strikingly. Uh, the Constitution is read aloud throughout the state, and it's read in particular in Sheffield, in Western Mass, where uh, Freeman is enslaved uh, to the Ashley family. And after she hears it, uh, read aloud, uh, the next day, as the story that, his, uh, that her lawyer's uh, family uh, reports at least goes, she approaches a young lawyer, Theodore Sedgwick, uh, a well-known abolitionist young lawyer in Sheffield, and says to him, I heard that paper read yesterday that says all men are created equal and that every man has a right to freedom. I'm not a dumb critter. Won't the law give me my freedom? Sedgwick takes her case and begins to argue in court that, yes, under the Constitution, slavery should be illegal, that, that uh, Freeman and a fellow slave named Brahm from the Ashley household, who he enfolds in the case, uh, should be able to gain freedom. At the same time, elsewhere in the state, in Worcester County, Quack Walker is experiencing a similar moment. He is enslaved to a family uh, named the Caldwells. He's been promised his freedom, but when Master Caldwell dies um, and his wife remarries a man named Jemison, uh, Quack is not given that freedom. He runs away to a neighboring farm owned by Caldwell's brothers um, to seek that freedom, and then Jemison uh, finds him there, beats him brutally, returns him to slavery. And with the help of those Caldwell brothers, Quack begins to argue as well for his freedom, his legal freedom under the Constitution. These cases begin separately, but eventually are intertwined, winding their way through the courts, which rule ultimately in favor of both of them. Um, the case is taken to the Supreme Court in Massachusetts, the Supreme Judicial Court, by um, a state's attorney who's, who, who is himself an abolitionist, trying to help with the abolition of slavery. And in the decision of the Supreme Judicial Court, uh, Freeman and Walker's appeals or, or their cases are upheld. And the decision, which I won't read all of, is a particularly striking argument for an inclusive vision of not just slavery in Massachusetts and America, but of the effects of the revolution and its ideals on enslaved African Americans in particular. So in that decision, Chief Justice William Cushing writes that about slavery, whatever sentiments have formerly prevailed in this particular or slid in upon us by the example of others, a different idea has taken place with the people of America. 
were favorable to the natural rights and the desire for liberty. And then uh, toward the end there, upon this ground, our constitution of government in Massachusetts has been, uh, binds those in the, in the Commonwealth, meaning that in short, our constitution and our Commonwealth is totally repugnant to the idea of being born slaves. This being the case, I think the idea of slavery is inconsistent with our own conduct and constitution. And the phrase I would particularly highlight in that striking paragraph and decision is up toward the top, a different idea has taken place with the people of America. This is an inclusive argument, an argument for a fundamentally inclusive vision of America, that there is something about this place, this community, that means that slavery is, is repugnant, is not, um, does not comport with our conduct and our constitution, with our ideas and our practices. That's the argument Cushing is making. Um, it's obviously not as simple as that. Again, we know that slavery continues to be a part not just of, of most of the United States, but indeed of the Constitution of the United States that is passed uh, just a few years after um, uh, this decision. Um, but on the other hand, uh, there are real effects of this as well as just I ideological or philosophical ones. In Massachusetts, again, there are about 5,000 enslaved African Americans in 1780, as historians have estimated it. On the 1790 census, the first post-Constitution census, there are none. There are no enslaved African Americans in Mass. The practice is never abolished by law in Massachusetts until the 13th Amendment, after the Civil War, indeed. But it, it, it stops. It ends in Massachusetts. It ends because of social and political pressures, because of the effects of this decision, because of the work of activists like these, particularly Freeman and Walker, but certainly their allies, uh, personal and legal, um, and becoming the first state in the new United States to have no uh, legal slavery or no practice of slavery. Other states that pass abolitionist laws pass them in a way that means that a newborn residents cannot become slaves, but those who are already born remain enslaved. And so, for example, in New Jersey, there are still enslaved African Americans as late as the 1840s. Uh, but in Massachusetts, as of 1790, there are, are none on that census. And I think it's a direct example of how these inclusive ideas aren't just ideas. They have real uh, effects in practice and certainly did in mass in response to these activists and their allies. So that's the second example. Uh, the third one that I'll talk about for a couple is a third type, a third category of, of experience, and that is the experience of a community that is seen as new and threatening, but in fact is not at all, is one of the oldest and longest standing American communities, which is the Filipino-American community, defined in the early 20th century as a new and threatening community in ways that advance an exclusionary argument about them. And that really has a lot to do with, with two factors, uh, two interconnected factors in the early 20th century. One is the U.S. occupation of the Philippines um, after the Spanish-American War until the end of World War II or so. The U.S. is a, occupies the islands as an imperial occupying nation. Um, and, and of course, during that time is fighting a two decade or so war against Filipino insurgents or, or revolutionaries, depending on how you would want to frame them, that begins right after the end of the Spanish-American War in early 1899 and continues in a couple phases until about 1918, uh, 1917, 1918, with the end of the so-called Moro Rebellion. And so those are factors, but because of all that too, uh, the number of Filipino arrivals to the U.S. goes up significantly during this era. It's now a territory of the U.S. and it's both easier and more possible in various ways for Filipino immigrants to come to the U.S. And so all of that contributes as well to the rise of this set of exclusionary images of that community in this era. That starts as early as this Boston Sunday Globe cartoon from March 1899, just a month into that war between the U.S. and Filipino insurgents. Um, and you can see how this cartoon uses the kind of visual language of, of partly sort of minstrelsy and anti-African-American imagery, but also an exclusionary language, exclusionary visual language that depicts the impossibility, the, the laughable possibility of these savage Filipinos becoming American, doing things like wearing American clothes, playing baseball, etc. The gap 
an exclusionary vision of, of the impossibility of this community becoming part of America. Um, that exclusionary narrative develops over the next few decades and culminates in a couple of striking 1930s histories. One is a series of hate crimes and massacres directed at Filipino neighborhoods throughout the U.S., such as this one in Watsonville, California in 1930 that destroys an entire community and kills and injures many uh, Filipino-American residents. But even more striking than that is the development of a couple of laws in the 1930s, which pretty literally break the law in order to advance exclusionary laws. Because again, the U.S. is occupying the Philippines at this time, meaning that Filipinos are part of the United States. They are part of a territory. They cannot legally be defined as, as a foreign people while the U.S. is occupying their nation. But these laws seek to do just that. And the way they do that is basically by promising future independence to the Philippines in exchange for ex trying to exclude that community in the present. So the first of them, the Tidings-McDuffie Act of 1934, again, promises that the Philippines can gain independence in 1945, uh, but does so in in order, I would argue very much in order to set this quota of Filipino arrivals, despite again their being part of the U.S. in this moment in 1934, at 50 arrivals per year, a number so small as to be an exclusion act by another name, and again, uh, technically illegal uh, given the Philippines' current status, but, but allowed in the law's eyes by that promise of future independence. But of course, new arrivals are only one part of the Filipino-American community. There are more than 120,000 Filipino-Americans in this era. So the next year, a law goes further still. The Filipino Repatriation Act uh, seeks to helpfully offer the possibility the goal is to force uh, the reality that all those 120,000 Filipino Americans return to the Philippines, leave the United States and return. That is the, the stated goal of the Repatriation Act. It fails largely. Most Filipino Americans don't leave. But it's based not only on, again, those particular current perspectives, but on this larger exclusionary narrative that we see, for example, in this decision of a San Francisco judge in a court case, I think also in 1935. Uh, he's ruling against a Filipino man who's been accused of being in a uh, sexual relationship with a young white woman in California under the anti-miscegenation laws of that state at the time in most states. And in that decision, we see uh, this exclusionary logic. It is a dreadful thing when these Filipinos, scarcely more than savages, come to San Francisco, work for practically nothing, and obtain the society of these girls. Now, there's like seven different stereotypes and exclusionary ideas within those three lines, but the one that I would point to most tellingly is the come to San Francisco. This vision depends at least in part on a definition of this Filipino-American community as new, fundamentally new, and particularly threatening through its newness. And there'd be lots of ways to push back on those exclusionary stereotypes and narratives, but one particularly clear one is to highlight how, how wrong that is about our history. Uh, the Filipino-American community is indeed the oldest Asian-American community in the U.S. by a good bit. Uh, Filipino villages begin to develop in Spanish Louisiana as early as the 1750s and 1760s, while uh, Louisiana is still part of the Spanish uh, colonial empire. Um, this is a picture from a Harper's Weekly article about St. Malo, one of those villages more than 100 years after it had begun in 1863 during the Civil War. Um, and uh, Filipino fishermen and sailors begin to leave the Spanish uh, Navy and service, settle these villages in Spanish Louisiana in the 1750s and 60s. Uh, by the time that the U.S. purchases Louisiana as part of the 1803 Louisiana Purchase, these villages and communities are about half a century old. They remain very much a part of Louisiana and a part of the new expanding United States in that era and have an important role to play, for example, in the U.S.'s first post-revolution conflict, the War of 1812. Um, as you may know, the final battle of that war is the Battle of New Orleans, an ironic one because the battle was fought technically after peace had been declared. Uh, news traveled slowly in the 1810s. But it's no less of a significant and brutal battle uh, for that irony. Um, and the U.S. forces in that Battle of New Orleans are an incredibly multinational, multicultural, inclusive army, despite being commanded by Andrew Jackson, not himself a model of that inclusive vision. Those forces include uh, Native American communities or uh, 
soldiers from many different communities, um, a free men of color, African-Americans from uh, New Orleans, uh, French Creole pirates and privateers under the command of Jean Lafitte, a Caribbean French-American pirate and privateer, and most relevantly for me here, uh, the Manila men. Uh, many men from those Filipino-American villages join those armed forces and fight um, as part of that U.S. Army at the Battle of New Orleans. And, if, and, and that history then extends throughout the 19th century. Uh, there are Filipino-American men who fight in the Civil War. Um, uh, Almost all the ones who've been discovered fight on the Union side, despite coming from Louisiana, a striking and inclusive choice to be sure. And all that helps us reframe the early 20th century and the narratives of that Filipino-American community and its residents. So just a couple examples. Vicente Lim is the first Filipino-American graduate of West Point, graduating in 1914. He serves with distinction in both World War I and World War II, and he's fighting back in the Philippines with the U.S. forces in World War II as a general when he's captured by the Japanese and unfortunately dies in a prisoner of war camp. But an individual who thus extends that legacy of military service, going back at least to the War of 1812, into that early 20th century moment. Agrippino and Florence Wassian are another telling couple. Um, Agrippino is a Navy veteran um, who retires from the Navy, and they move to Philadelphia, um, where they started an organization called the Filipino-American Association of Philadelphia, Incorporated, FAAPR. Um, and during World War I, during the influenza epidemic just at the end of World War I, um, Florence, who's a registered nurse, and Agrippino as a community leader, offer free medical supplies and care to, to many, many residents of Philadelphia during that, that horrific influenza epidemic, so certainly extending the idea of Filipino-American communities. But the, Filip the Filipino-American who I want to end this uh, section with is this voice, this figure, and this text. Um, one of my favorite American books, America is in the Heart, an autobiographical novel by Carlos Bulasan, a young uh, Filipino-American um, who comes to the U.S. in 1930 as a, a late teenager, works as a migrant laborer throughout the Depression, but during that time is also developing his uh, creative writing skills and his impression of this nation of, at its most exclusionary both towards Filipino-Americans and throughout the Depression in a variety of ways, but also an inclusive argument for it that his title suggests, and that he comes to most potently in the closing paragraph of that book, where he writes about what this idea of America is. It was something that grew out of the sacrifices and loneliness of my friends, of my brothers in America, and my family in the Philippines. Something that grew out of our desire to know America, and to become a part of her great tradition, and to contribute something toward her final fulfillment. I knew that no man could destroy my faith in America that had sprung from all our hopes and aspirations ever. And I would argue there are a couple slippages in that last part of that beautiful quote that are particularly telling for an inclusive perspective. I think both the faith and America itself have sprung from those hopes and aspirations. I think the, the idea of the place as well as the faith in it comes out. And the hour in that last phrase I think is not simply Filipino-American, although it certainly is in part for Bulasan. It's, it's collective. It's our. It's all, all the brothers, all the extended family that he's written about throughout the book and is arguing for here. Now, when I first wrote my first version of this book talk, that was where I ended. But I do have a brief coda on a different chapter uh, focused on the Muslim American community for two reasons that I want to end with this quickly. One, it brings us a little more fully still up to the 21st century. Um, and two, because it also brings us up to the Constitution, something that for some reason has been on our mind a lot in, in recent days in late 2019. So this is another community that, of course, has been has been targeted by exclusionary narratives, particularly over the last couple decades, for lots of reasons, including, of course, the September 11th uh, terrorist attacks, but that we've really seen those narratives develop very fully in the last few years as well. And this is just a couple examples from during the presidential campaign of, of 2016, um, when uh, various uh, GOP figures, uh, 
presidential candidates, a media figures, state legislators, developed versions of an exclusionary argument about Muslim Americans, including in Ben Carson's quote, a one that was echoed by most of his fellow presidential candidates during that campaign, that a Muslim American who sought the presidency would have to renounce Islam before becoming president. Uh, the columnist Cal Thomas advanced the same thing in a column thereafter, avoiding a Muslim in the White House's caution, not bigotry, and that we see that exclusionary vision in the state legislators' quote about the possibility of Syrian refugees coming to that state. They don't plan to assimilate. They don't plan to take on our culture. They plan to change the American way of life into, into something else. And so this is an idea not only about this community as, as outside or excluded from, but impossibly able to become, right? Can't even serve in office without abandoning a part of that community's identity. And again, there are lots of ways to push back on that, as I argue in this chapter. But one of the central ones is to focus on a particularly Mus particular Muslim American community from the revolutionary era who have a huge impact not only on their community, but on the Constitution, as I'll end with in a moment. And that's the Moroccan-American, or Moorish in the language of the time, community in Charleston, South Carolina. Now, that community exists partly because of a really unique relationship between the U.S. and Morocco and the Revolution. Morocco was the first nation in the world to recognize the new United States during the Revolution, opening its ports to U.S. ships as early as 1777, well before any other nation in the world did so. And that relationship builds into this treaty of friendship signed between the two nations in 1786, which endures to this day, um, and which not only creates an ongoing relationship, but makes it that much more possible for Moroccans to come to the U.S. Um, it seems there already was a developing Moroccan community in Charleston, one based in part on former slaves, uh, freed or ex-slaves, but that community grows in part because of this relationship as well, and there are a couple of layers to the, uh, the legal effects as well as the communal ones of that, of that community's existence. One of which is this law, and I know the text of it is illegible, but it's cool, so I like to put it there, which is the Moore's Sundry Act, so-called of 1790, one of the first laws passed by the South Carolina House of Representatives after the Constitution's ratified. Uh, this law is passed in response to a petition from uh, members of that Moroccan-American community who bring a petition to the state legislature arguing that they should be able to, to gain the rights of citizenship to become citizens in South Carolina and in the new U.S. A tribunal of judges uh, agrees with them, recommends um, them for citizenship, and the state legislature passes this law that grants them that possibility of becoming citizens in 1790, uh, giving them, among other things, the right to vote, to serve on juries, and other aspects of citizenship. But there, the effects of this community go one step further, and this is where I want to end uh, with the Constitution and, and a whole other level to thinking about inclusion in America. And that is uh, this particular clause of the Constitution, which is the only place in the body of the Constitution where religion is mentioned at all. Of course, there's the First Amendment added as part of the Bill of Rights. But in the body of the Constitution, there's only one reference to religion, and it's this one in Article 6, which argues that while those who seek office or hold office and other roles in the U.S. government are bound by oath to the Constitution, no religious test shall ever be required as a qualification to any office or public trust under the United States. This is a really radical and striking moment in the Constitution. Every other nation that the U.S. would have been aware of at the time, I would argue, had a state religion of one kind or another, had a religion that at least nominally you had to belong to if you were going to run for office, hold office, be part of the government of that nation. The U.S. not only didn't have that, didn't develop a state religion in its Constitution, but it went one step further and said you can't even be asked. It, no religious test. You can hold any religion, no religion, and run for office, part of this new government that the Constitution is establishing. Now, that clause of the Constitution was written by Charles Pinckney, who's a representative to the Constitutional Convention from South Carolina. His cousin, Charles Coatsworth Pinckney, another representative to the convention, was also one of those three judges who would hear uh, the, the Moroccan-American petition in the following year after the Constitution's ratification. These men were deeply familiar with that Muslim-American community in their own city and home state and community. And I believe uh, there's clear evidence that they were not only aware of it, but that that becomes part of the thinking about 
that clause, is the recognition, the inclusive recognition of multiple communities in this U.S. So when the Constitution is brought back for the ratification debates in the state legislatures, in both North and South Carolina, the representatives are asked about that religious test clause exactly. And we have a, a fuller transcript of the North Carolina debate uh, where the question is raised, the first quote here, that the exclusion of religious tests is by many thought dangerous and impolitic. They suppose that if there be no religious test required, pagans, deists, and Mohammedans, Muslims, might obtain offices among us. And the answer of the constitutional representative is yes, that's exactly what it means. It is objected that the people of America may perhaps choose representatives who have no religion at all, and that pagans and Mohammedans may be admitted into offices. But how is it possible to exclude any set of men? without taking away that principle of religious freedom, which we ourselves so warmly contend for. This is an argument, and that word ex exclude, I think, really highlights it. For, again, a fundamental vision of America, its ideas, its ideals, its identity is being developed in this key moment as inclusive, as having to be inclusive in order to live up to those best versions of who we are, and that an attempt to exclude of a very real community at the time, like those Muslim Americans or of any community, would fundamentally violate that definition, that vision. That's at the core of the debate, not just these different ways of thinking about particular communities, but these ways of thinking about us, about that we and how that we gets defined, either to include all those communities that are part of it or to fundamentally define that we in a way that excludes instead. Thanks.